Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. MCIE. Hi, I'm Tim Villegas, and you are listening to a special bonus edition of the Think Inclusive podcast presented by MCIE. In the early hours, one June morning in 2021, I sat down to drink my coffee and scroll through my various news feeds. Nothing particularly interesting until... This is your News Minute on the Cherokee Tribune-Ledger podcast, brought to you by Credit Union of Georgia. Today is Thursday, June the 3rd, and I'm J.P. Edwards. Cecilia Lewis, the Maryland school principal who was hired to focus on diversity at Cherokee County School District, stepped away from the position after receiving a strong message from residents that she is not welcome. She said, quote, The message I received from the Cherokee County community, who had never met me or tried to get to know me, not the position, is we do not want you here. You don't belong here, and you're not welcome here. Highlighting the fact that the work of celebrating and appreciating diversity, instead of denying or judging it, is much needed in the district, end quote. Rumors had circulated on social media connecting the hiring of Miss Lewis to critical race theory, an academic framework that assumes race is a social construct and that racism is embedded in legal systems and policies. I thought, wait one second, I know this person. The Maryland school principal in the news story worked for one of MCIE's partners, and I had recently interviewed her about what it was like to be at a school that was going through inclusive systems change. Hi, good afternoon. Hello, Cecilia. That is me. Excellent, (laughs) excellent. Thanks for uh, taking some time out. She mentioned during our meeting that she and her husband were looking to move to Georgia to be closer to family. So light bulbs are going off in my head and I'm like, oh no, What a shame that Cecilia is being demonized by people that don't even know her about 
something that is so misunderstood. I mean, she is one of the good ones. If we can't have people like her who believe in equity for all students, including those with disabilities, in leadership positions, it doesn't bode well to make change, especially here in the South. And that is when it hit me. All of this critical race theory backlash is going to hurt our overall goal of including students with complex support needs in general education. I mean, listen to what Cecilia says about the difference including a student with significant behavioral support needs made for them in the school community. So we have um, a student who happens to be um, in uh, the behavior development program and the majority of that student's time initially was in the behavioral development program. But we recognize that many of the um, supports that were identified for that student were not tied to necessarily any type of academic challenges. However, it did not justify that student being segregated. Um, and so we, we phased in uh, class by class so it started with one class, and um, today that student is fully included in every single course. It really is about, if you don't believe in it, then you know, I, I would not recommend <laughs> you know, anyone spinning their wheels going through the motions. But I can tell you that when you do believe in it and you do invest in it becoming a priority, then you will begin to see, and I'm, I'm not talking about slow shifts. I'm talking about quick shifts because our kids we can't afford for our kids to wait. You know, they, this is all fine, Tim, but what does CRT or the backlash have to do with any of it? Okay. Briefly stated the anti CRT movement is taking down in its wake, any initiatives that focus on educational equity. This includes any progress that we have made toward inclusive systems change in public schools, because advocates like you and me have been trying to connect the dots from disability rights to educational equity for quite some time now. And if you don't think this is a problem, PEN America is keeping track of over 100 bills from across the country proposing to keep teachers from talking about divisive subjects or subjects that cause students to feel discomfort. And some of them explicitly mention critical race theory or LGBTQIA issues. So as we were producing this episode, I knew that I didn't know enough about this topic. So I called in a few people to help. King Williams. I am a journalist and a filmmaker in Atlanta, Georgia. Alita Miranda Wolf from the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging sector. I'm the CEO and founder of Ethos. Eddie Fergus at Temple University. I'm a professor of urban education and policy. And my old friend, high school educator and doc student in Colorado, Pete Newlove. I am a doctoral student at the University of Colorado, Denver. To see if we could find out more about critical race theory and what we as advocates for inclusive education should know about it. To get us started, here is Eddie Fergus. So, you know, what's interesting, so I'm a, you know, as a professor of urban education and policy, I actually teach us critical race theory class um, for doctoral students. 
right? So, and I, I start there because I part of what we have to understand is that critical race theory is just like many sets of theories that are taught at a graduate level and maybe even at an undergraduate level, right? It is part of the academic training that individuals are receiving within a particular discipline, right? It's like you learn about a range of theories. Critical race theory is one of them that is, you know, sort of it's really um, uh, taught, right? And the idea, what critical race theory is, right? It it came out of a response to the ways in which legal theory was articulating and trying to make sense of what's happening to a variety of marginalized populations who are interacting with the legal system. And critical race theorists um, like Derek Bell and others really started to push the idea and reconcile, well, how does legal structures make sense of a racialized history of a society, right? So if we're going to think about, you know, um, housing discrimination, right, or housing inequalities, then we have to look at it alongside a history of Jim Crow laws, for example, that operated in such a way that encouraged a level of segregation, right? So we can't treat the idea of like, well, everybody has an opportunity to, to do how to live wherever they want. Right, so we're going to look at housing and the, the 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 degree to which inequality is existing around housing. We've got to look at it within a historical context. For more on the historical context of CRT, here is King Williams. Critical race theory comes out of a very important time in U.S. history, and that U.S. history is really the end of the civil rights movement and getting towards the tail end of the Black Power movement. So what we're talking about really is it's slowly but surely trickling up with um, the future scholars, um, most of which Derek Bell in particular, who starts to take this idea for the 1970s. But one of the things I think people need to understand is that people who like Derek, Derek Bell are becoming, in many cases, the first African-Americans actually allowed into law schools or the first after segregation in many parts of the country. And so many of these law school students are now analyzing legal frameworks that have been used to disenfranchise African-Americans, particularly uh, between Reconstruction, which was from 1865 to 1877, and then the period we now call Jim Crow from uh, basically 1877 till really about the 1950s and 1960s. And so as much as we think maybe Martin Luther King had a dream and everything was over with, in reality, that's not what happened at all, right? And so you have this first wave of people going to honest uh, law schools and just universities, especially public. And this brings about a different backlash we can get into later that's going to really cook your noodle in a second. But... This backlash comes from just effectively these black students really challenging the notions that the law is the law. And more importantly, that the law and legality are um, moral and right. And I think this is something super important as we kind of talk through the rest of this conversation. And so that brought up two particular cases, one of which is Dred Scott and the other one is Plessy versus Ferguson. And so many people who've actually studied under critical race theory um, have actually brought these up because these are examples of things that are legal but not necessarily moral. And so in the case of Dred Scott, this is the 1857 decision. This is gonna be one of the decisions that eventually leads to the Civil War. And in short, what this just says was that citizenship would never be possible for African-Americans, especially if you were born a slave, you are still a slave, regardless if you're on free territory or not, pretty straightforward. And so critical race theory is analyzing that particular decision and how that plays out in policies over time. So you have an entire there's an entire discourse, an entire discipline just on that particular case, especially in law school. But that's what 
falls into. And the other one is Plessy versus Ferguson. Okay, in case you missed this in your history class, here is some information about Plessy versus Ferguson. In 1890, a law was passed in Louisiana providing for separate railway carriages for the white and colored races. It stated that all passenger railways had to provide these separate cars, which should be equal in facilities. Hmm, where have I heard the separate but equal concept before. Homer Plessy, who was mixed race, seven-eighths Caucasian and one-eighth African blood, according to him, agreed to be the plaintiff at testing the law's constitutionality. So, on June 7, 1892, Plessy bought a ticket on a train from New Orleans to Covington, Louisiana, and took a vacant seat in a whites-only car, after refusing to leave the car at the conductor's insistence, he was arrested and jailed. Convicted by a New Orleans court on violating the 1890 law, Plessy filed a petition against the presiding judge, Honorable John H. Ferguson, claiming that the law violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. On May 18, 1896, the Supreme Court delivered its verdict in Plessy v. Ferguson, in declaring separate but equal facilities constitutional on interstate railroads. The court ruled that the protections of the 14th Amendment applied only to political and civil rights like voting and jury service, not social rights like sitting in the railroad car of your choice. In its ruling, the court denied that segregated railroad cars for black people were necessarily inferior. We consider the underlying fallacy of Plessy's argument, Justice Henry Brown wrote, to consist in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this be so, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. Again, if you are a disability rights advocate, doesn't this sound familiar for example, special education classrooms. Big props to history.com for the information assist. Here is more about the implications of Plessy versus Ferguson from Eddie Fergus. Um, if we think about the Plessy versus um, uh, Ferguson, you know, uh, uh, case, um, the uh, the premise around that was that you had Plessy that was uh, uh, th that Plessy was trying to activate their um, their whiteness, uh, but that wasn't at the level that it needed to be because they also had a drop of black blood, right? So this person could activate their whiteness. So whiteness as property was sort of utilized and developed over time as a way to mechanize the idea that the greatest property value lives within whiteness, right? So you can use whiteness to get homes in where you wanted to. You could use whiteness to get the types of jobs or um, or at least uh, maybe not even get the jobs that you want, but you didn't have to compete with folks of color. But what about the tenants of CRT? I think this is where a lot of us are confused. So here is Alita Miranda Wolf explaining the tenants of critical race theory. 
So very simply, critical race theory is a theory that was developed in the 1970s as a way of examining and challenging the relationship between the law and race and racial inequity. And it's also important to note, because this is something that gets misinterpreted or mischaracterized, that it was part of a larger critical studies movement and the term critical doesn't refer to being critical of any given social group. It refers to critical thinking. And I think what can make critical race theory a little bit easier to understand are what are the sort of pillars or tenets of it? So the first thing that critical race theory says is that race is not biological. It's not physical. It's a social construct. And this is really tied to the wave of DNA testing and 23andMe and the consumer market for understanding your history going back very far. Race really isn't something that is finite or fixed or concrete. It's something that is created by a group of people and used to label another group of people rather than a sort of objective fact or situation. So the way to think about it is we have seen changes in how people are perceived in terms of their race. I always go back to during the Gilded Age in the US, Irish people were considered to be Black because they were considered of the same social station as uh, African descendants of slaves. So we see change in it and there's a historical precedent for it. The next kind of descriptor of critical race theory is that racism isn't an outlier. It's not a few bad actors who engage in racist practices. Racism is the norm in the US. So our institutions like our criminal justice system, our education system, the legal system itself are really designed to act in the service of racist ideologies and principles. The third is a piece that is particularly important for the work that I do in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which is that critical race theory focuses on storytelling and counter storytelling. And they care in the movement about who gets to talk about race and who gets to talk about their lived experiences. And they argue that this is really necessary to unpacking race and racism. And then the last thing is that critical race theory rejects the school of thinking that says meritocracy and colorblindness are the right approaches to racism. Instead, folks like Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a major, major figure in the movement, argue that when we take on these colorblind policies or this idea of meritocracy in the way our institutions and systems are built, we're actually hiding the ways in which our public policy and law legislate inequality on the basis of race. So I, I say that because I've heard critical race theory described as a whole lot of things, and it's actually a pretty niche academic framework that came up in legal circles, and the principles of it are useful and do get taught in a variety of different contexts, but that's what it is as a whole. So the other thing I wanted to understand is how this backlash against CRT was affecting educators. So... I asked my friend and current high school English teacher, Pete Newlove. So uh, I'm Pete Newlove. 
Uh, I am a doctoral student at the University of Colorado, Denver, where I'm finishing up my dissertation work right now on uh, looking at the, the motivations and the negotiations that classroom teachers have when trying to enact um, anti-racist practices in their classroom. Um, and I am also a classroom uh, high school English teacher uh, in the, the local area. <laughs> um, I wanted to state up front that like my own relationship to CRT, CRT has definitely informed my work as, as a teacher and as a researcher. Um, it's been part of like the analytical lens that's helped me to understand like how does racism manifest in schools? How does it operate in these spaces in society and in schools uh, specifically? But as uh, a white male, uh, my kind of relationship to CRT is from like an outsider's perspective. What what the the loudest opponents of critical race theory are saying about CRT? It's not CRT. <laughs> <laughs> Just to reiterate that point and, and be clear about that, 99% uh, of the people who are yelling loudly about critical race theory don't know anything about it. What they are really looking at and seeing is uh, they don't like what's happening in regards to um, anti-racism. They don't like what's happening in regards to shifting power dynamics, uh, in regards to places making more space for uh, for oppressed folks to have more access uh, when people who have had privilege and power feel like they're starting to lose that privilege and power, they'll start to lash out historically against all of that, right? So the current moment that we're in is definitely, definitely related to the summer of 2020 mm -hmm. to like the racial justice, you know, protest uprisings. Some people call it a reckoning. I think some people reckoned, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of corporations apparently reckoned too and put out various you know statements or whatever. Right. School districts put out various statements. The extent to which they really reckoned, right? There's probably a very wide scale. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, the moment that we're in now is absolutely this backlash and response to that moment where at least for a brief period of time, there were more conversations around like, yeah, like what is going on with racism all around us and whether it's police brutality or whether it's regards to racial profiling, uh, inequities in schooling, all sorts of other things. Um, there are a couple of school districts in Colorado where um, uh, school board elections that happened in November just a few months ago uh, were, were very backed by uh, the groups that have been behind all of this anti-CRT fervor and all of the kind of like book banning fervor. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there was definitely some, some groups that put a lot of money into school board races. And uh, uh, there was a district uh, just south of Denver uh, in Douglas County where uh, the superintendent was just removed <laughs> uh, because a uh, small majority of four in a seven person school board, uh, majority of four that was just recently elected and put into, uh, voted into the school board being backed by one of these groups that is trying to enact all of this sort of anti-CRT uh, hype. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
they they just straight up voted to remove the superintendent and <laughs> there's definitely a lawsuit coming out of that but but the step before they voted to remove the superintendent was uh the the year before the superintendent of that district uh helps to roll out a new equity policy that would look at uh, what are the inequities that are happening across this school district the school board that was voted in uh stripped that uh, and then their next move was to remove the the superintendent after that. So we, we've got here in Colorado definitely um, some very localized places where where people are making these moves to um, yell loudly about equity-based initiatives, to yell loudly about uh, racial justice initiatives, to yell loudly about um, any initiatives where they feel like the privilege and power that they have had are being stripped away from them. We will definitely link to that story from Douglas County in the show notes. One of the other questions I had, I posed to King Williams. How did we even get to this point where there is a concerted effort to ban CRT in schools? In the case of critical race theory in particular, the direct, direct, um, reason why we're talking about this now is because in late August of last year, early September, the Trump administration came out right and banned like the teaching of critical race theory and anti-racist theory. Right, that became a thing. But because 2020 had at least a new episode every single day of life, it kind of just got sh lost in the shuffle. Um, but it came back up again over the last few weeks as more and more people now, you know, are getting back adjusted to life, and more specifically, people are starting to challenge the notions of. Of, you know, what race and what America is, right? And so a lot of things lumped critical race theory together and more specifically came out of backlash of one particular journalist and a university professor named Hannah Nicole Jones. And so a lot of her writing is not actually critical race uh, theory by definition, right? But she gets grouped up into that because of her project called the 1619 Project. And this also gets into one of the overall critiques of Black scholarship in general. And it's something I've tweeted about and written about before, which is, um, there's two things you should know, and I, I say this to someone who's graduated a degree in an African-American state from Georgia State, one of the, the, the 10 or 12 best African-American uh, studies departments in the entire U.S., and I'm going to give them a special shout out. The next thing is that um, when it comes to this, there's some that just, the two most important things about African-American studies, are, which is a part of a broader Africana studies, is two things. One of which is it's meant to be challenging, which is the first part, and it's meant to always be corrected. And so I think people really don't understand that uh, when it comes to most of our academic discourses, we are, we effectively get, we take something and then the teacher, you know, we get something the teacher teaches us, but we're not necessarily meant to talk back. When you take African-American studies or Africana studies, it's actually meant that you're supposed to learn and then challenge, right? So it's one of the few disciplines that actually requires a certain level of challenge and discipline. Okay. I think I'm starting to get it. So as I was talking to Eddie Fergus, I realized that CRT is not being taught in public schools. In fact, it's not a curriculum at all. No, <laughs> it's not like these are the CRT approved texts that you must, you know, in order to indoctrinate, indoctrinate your students. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, so let's get a little bit to the fear um, mm. and the pushback that, that the CRT has gotten, um, you know, so 
like like we just said, it's not a curriculum. It's not a step by step. This is you know how you teach it, what you teach it. It's really a it's really a framework or a way of thinking, uh, intended to inform um, your actions, whether you're a policymaker, whether that you're a researcher, right? It's mm-hmm. it's really meant to inform you know what wherever the work is, right? So you know, I guess theoretically a teacher could use this Mm -hmm. framework, right. Um, to inform their teaching, but Mm -hmm. not in the way that is being characterized. So, so why don't you, I know that we probably could both swap stories about this, but you know, in your experience and as you've been talking about CRT, what are some examples of how CRT, uh, has been uh, distorted and used as a as a weapon against educators and schools right now. Mm-hmm. So you know the ways in which it's being weaponized is well, one you know there's an element of this anti CRT that's it's it's become a cultural wedge to um, to bring in and this is you know sort of my own perspective around this to bring in a voting constituency into a political camp, right? That to arm them with a set of information, even though that information is disinformation, right? Um, uh, bring them in in a way that taps into a, um, a, a, a sort of individualism um, sort of value point of view, right? The idea of nobody teaches my children anything unless I teach it to them. Nobody's going to indoctrinate, right? Like there's something about that, uh, uh, that I'm the main driver of what's happening to my children. I'm the main driver of my family, what have you, right? That those are some of the elements of what's, um, of what's being utilized here within this, uh, within this sort of environment. And so for us to, um, so as we weigh into how, uh, uh, to uh, to sort of deal with this, we have to understand those pieces. So, in understanding those, you know, one of the things that you know, it's the um, uh, there's an element of sort of being mindful that there is a way in which we um, uh, that there is a desire for some parts of our community that are experiencing this idea, particularly this idea that there's a sense of American exceptionalism and individualism and patriotism, which is all being kind of wrapped up to, into this really weird knot, right? That it is being demonized or challenged um, over the last six, seven years, right? When, um, and it's it is emerging in some ways as a bit of a response to Black Lives Matter, you know, the, uh, and not just Black Lives Matters, but I also want to put in there sort of other social movements that we've also been attentive to, right? So I want to put in there the Me Too movement as well, that it's, it's and these types of social movements are really um, representing a um, an exhaustion that communities who have uh, continuously experienced marginalization are speaking up and speaking up loud and speaking up specifically around what it is that's happening to them. And so, this response, this anti-CRT, is operating as a cultural wedge to get this group to kind of give them something that they presume they're losing, right? This They're losing sort of this, this weird knot of American exceptionalism, individualism, and patriotism that these social movements are perceived as challenging, you know, These social movements are challenging our sense of American exceptionalism, right? The idea of, you know, I, w- I was reading the, the Texas bill um, last week, 
and there was a piece in there that says children need to be taught you know, these founding documents to understand how great our country is, right? And there's this, that sentiment is something that is perceived being challenged by these social movements, right? But what's what's misunderstood is like, you can be great and still have flaws, right? And what these social movements are saying is like, um, let's be mindful of that, that greatness has not been great for everyone. Let's be better, about achieving that level of greatness, right? And that's why these types of social movements have been so critical to kind of point those things out. But I think they're being experienced as, you know, it's the a loss of an identity, right? A loss of this American exceptionalism, this individualism and patriotism is being lost as a result of being of having this light shined on um, the the shortcomings. So before you say, Tim, you've absolutely lost the plot on this one. I want to bring us back around to why we wanted to produce this episode in the first place. And it has a lot to do with what Eddie is talking about here, the rise of the social justice movements, because embedded in those movements is the disability rights movement and the progress we have made for inclusive education for all students. When we talk about inclusion for all students, we don't just mean students with disabilities. We mean any student that has been historically marginalized, and that means students of color, LGBTQIA plus students, students who are experiencing poverty and homelessness, and students who are English language learners. The rise of the anti-CRT movement will crush the progress we have made with educational equity. There are elements of our society that have historically privileged a lot of different sets of identities, right? It's privileged um, a white identity. It is privileged a male identity. It's privileged a heterosexual identity. It's privileged a, um, a an ability uh, 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 identity, right? It's, it has had this long history of doing that. And what these social movements are highlighting is that these those set of privileges are um, or privileging those things based on those identities are highly problematic. And we need to work on dissipating the privileging of that stuff, right? Um, and, uh, you know, but the reaction to it is the, um, it's either the, I disagree that those things are being privileged, right? Um, and, and which is, I find fascinating because, uh, you know, because it is so, there's, there's a plethora of ongoing information that is showcasing how we privilege all of those set of identities, right? The mere, the, the fact that it's, you know, I think about sort of ADA compliance, right? The, <laughs> That's a that, great example. That's a great example of, <laughs> right? Like yeah. we, we, we struggle with ADA compliance because we still have an ability privilege, right? That mm -hmm. we keep putting in the simplest things of, you know, how, you know, um, stores are built and the amount of um, the, the, whether or not there are handicapped parking spots, right? Like, Come on, let's be clear and acknowledge that there's privileging that's happening in terms of these identities. And but there's a struggle around that, right? Because then it means, and, and this is where I think this anti-CRT is, is sort of they're sort of situating the idea of feeling a sense of individual blame, shame, guilt, right? And don't want to have that experience, right? Like, so if we're gonna acknowledge these things. I don't want to be blamed for this. I don't want to feel guilty, right? I didn't do anything. That was my ancestors, right? Or what have you, right? Um, and so, and that, all of that disrupts that weird ball of American exceptionalism, individualism, and patriotism, right? And don't want to lose that. Don't want to lose that at the expense of sort of reconciling that there's been this privileging. 
you know, I've been sort of comparing this pushback movement to uh, the civil rights movement pushback. And in particular, there's images that of the 1960s where uh, they codified, uh, or I should say appropriated the civil rights movement language or slogans. And I saw, you know, I would see signs that said white's rights instead of civil rights, right? And, uh, and I see the same ilk of strategy that's happening where there's actually, I've seen some, uh, some board meetings where people have, you know, signs. I saw one that said, um, you know, uh, what about the rights for white people, right? That it, they feel as if like it's, um, they're, they're losing as a result of sort of this, these social movements who are reminding us that we're still falling short in terms of achieving equitable opportunities for everyone, everyone, because we have these set of privileged identities that we still hold constant, right? And so this work that we need to do has to give us an opportunity to, um, like, we've got to be clear around what that 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 propaganda is about, all that stuff, right? That's the genesis of it, right? And um, we've, we've got to develop not only sort of, well, I will say this, we've got to develop what is our curriculum to learn how to get along? Because we still haven't figured that out, mm-hmm. right? We move. We came out of the civil rights movement and saying, okay, there's going to be affirmative action. We're going to have. We're going to have all this plethora of sort of opportunities that we're just pushing in, right? Uh, but none of that came with a, a way in which we knew how to or curriculum for how to get along, right? And um, and I think now you know there's a level to which, and a colleague was talking about this idea that you know, within some of these white communities that are responding like this, that is partly a reflective of racial apathy, right? That they're just, I'm just tired of trying Mm. to work on this stuff. It's like, I can't get it right. You know, so I just say, you know, something, I just want to be white. And I just, you know, um, and if I remember correctly, um, there's this article by this, um, uh, uh, this media um, uh, scholar who was examining a, um, uh, a social media movement in the in 2017 2018 right at the beginnings of the trump administration it was called it's okay to be white um and interesting. Uh, it was a very interesting article right it, it and it showed it was like a youtube video and then it had a whole bunch of folks who were doing um these these additional videos of um it's okay to be white right and it's, it's sort of a bit of reflection of that racial apathy mm. A quick reminder, if you're feeling stressed, to take a few deep breaths and listen to some relaxing music before we get into the second half of the podcast episode. over 100 bills against teaching CRT or divisive topics across the country. Here is King Williams. And I want to read you, I know you sent that, I I sent this to you, but I have the resolution here uh, that was on from June 3rd, um, 2021. And uh, it has a a number of, uh, you know, things that 
are uh, listed in the resolution, but the number one thing was we, the state board of education for the state of Georgia, number one, believes the United States is not a racist country and that the state of Georgia is not a racist state. This resolution in particular um, is sending a message, right? It's a sending a message. Um, but does it, does it really have any impact other than sending a message? It's a warning shot to teachers who want to teach outside of the curriculum that was provided to them, right? So that's the first warning shot. This is especially for K-12 schools. I went to a Black school. We learned a lot about these things because we have Black teachers who learned history and like was specifically like telling us like about it, right? And so it's a warning shot for those teachers who I went to school um, and learned from, um, who were just very much like, you got to learn your history. That's what the textbook said. And I'm gonna tell you what actually is there. And so it's a warning shot. You're meant to do that. And more importantly, it's a weaponization of education and it's meant to reinforce the status quo. What this is, it is enshrining a, for the state of Georgia in particular, a, a, a century plus of history that was very, very much carefully constructed and specifically about the, the state of Georgia and specifically about Brian Kemp. This is the same person who within one year of him being elected into office signed a law that say that you cannot remove Confederate monuments or deface Confederate monuments without facing um, a legal challenge. And more specifically, once you do that, they have to be removed if they are removed to a place of equal prominence. Um, the reason why I'm bringing that up in particular is that when we talk about uh, education and particularly nationalistic education, what we don't talk often about is the role that the Daughters of the Confederacy and the Memorial Societies, the Memorial Societies were uh, organizations that predate the Daughters of the Confederacy by a few decades. They did in actually changing the narrative of education. So many of the, the myths that we're kind of fighting about now, um, everything from like the lost cause mythology or like the happy loyal slave um, to the even the, the, the phrase, the war uh, of a Northern aggression comes out of the daughters of the Confederacy and their ability to um, really get a lot of textbooks changed. And at that point, again, like school is not formalized, especially in the South, like it is maybe in the North and other places, but really pervading myths about the South, about education, about the Civil War, about slavery, um, as well as things like states' rights, right? And so when people say states' rights, that is a direct relationship to the Daughters of the Confederacy and their, their movement to make the South seem less treasonous as possible. And more specifically, also, we talk about Memorial Day, which happened a month ago. The first Memorial Day was actually reported in 1865 within one month at the end of the Civil War. And it was done by uh, former slave, former enslaved Africans, Union soldiers, and then uh, African-American soldiers who had joined the Union Army. So this had already happened. The Daughters of the Confederacy over the next couple of years had constituted Memorial Day um, as a day of celebration for the Confederate dead, the Confederate fallen. And as a result, this also brings about two things that's super important that we just mentioned before, which is the rise of, of Confederate monuments and Confederate graves. And then the other one is the rise of promoting this, the rebel battle flag across the South. And so when we talk about education, these are all aspects of education. They don't fall necessarily in critical ratio as we're talking about today, but they do fall into this history of what is considered history, right? When I, I went to school, Georgia history, none of this was covered, but it's actually important. I went to school and the Confederate flag was still flying. Well, I went to black, so they just didn't fly it. But like they would have it in front of every elementary school. Um, and so that is a very important thing to think about when we talk about 
history and education because what we're seeing effectively is the end of that system. Like I said before, Brian Kemp and Richard Nixon identity politics. And the other aspects of identity politics is identity politics requires a construction. And so how this all relates to critical race theory, and we'll bring it back home, is that the one of the, the, the early tenets of critical race theory is that all race is a construct. And I know that's kind of hard for people to believe, but when we talk about critical race theory, critical race theory falls into again Africana studies. And again, I cannot stress this enough to the, the guests at home. It is meant to be challenging. And so from one of your opening tenets is that the construct of race, which effectively renders all African-American and, and Africana studies effectively, even by its definition, um, either at challenge or should be abolished is because you have to think critically, right? And so one of the things that critical race theory brings up is that race is a construct. And as a result, the last 500 years or so, we've been living into a construct, which is something that should be abolished over time. So with everything we have been learning about critical race theory, that it is not being taught in K-12 schools, and how the anti-CRT movement is hurting strides towards educational equity, I asked Alita Miranda Wolf, is there anything we can learn from CRT? So I want to just start by saying most diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging educators, and most educators in your space too, aren't using CRT at all, especially because it is very focused on public policy. So the scope is much wider. One thing that I always like to clarify is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging came out of organizations and corporate workplaces, which means that it's a product of workplace dynamics and cultures and how people interact and what they expect from their work. CRT is a legal and racial theory, and it's an area of scholarship. So when we think about DEIB, yes, there's theory behind it, but it's mostly practical. That's not necessarily the case with CRT, or when we're thinking about K through 12 teachers, I mean, we, we really have to look at this realistically. A first grade teacher is not teaching her students about the hundreds of desegregation cases that led to negative outcomes. It's not a concept that's being introduced. So we have to acknowledge that there are places and times where CRT principles show up in these areas, but it as a concept, it's not showing up. I remember listening to the Bucks County School Board meetings because I wanted to feel really stressed, I guess. If you ever want to feel your heart rate literally increase in seconds, just listen to parents arguing in school board meetings. And I remember one of the teachers saying, all I did was introduce a social emotional learning curriculum to my first graders on how to manage anger and sadness. And I'm being told that I'm teaching CRT and that I'm indoctrinating the students with these beliefs that go against everything America stands for. So there definitely is this conflation happening that's not productive. But I will say this, I do use tenants of CRT in my work. And where I think it is very helpful and hugely valuable is the idea that we're going to think about the system and focus less on the bad apples who are creating problems at the individual level, but instead thinking about the system and how to set up one that's more stable, more sustainable, uh, more 
likely to advocate for and give access to people in underserved and, and underrepresented groups, that is so central to consulting with an organization to really make the experience better for employees. I also find that when I introduce true CRT principles in an adult learning setting, they're way less resistant because what we're telling them is you're not a bad person. You're not a bad person because you're white. You live in a society that distributes power on the basis of race, but you are not personally responsible for this. There are things that you can do to make changes and you yourself, just because of who you are, are not responsible for injustice and equity, which is part of CRT. So it's the opposite of what we're hearing in sort of the public discourse. I would also say, I don't think I could do the work that I do without the concept of intersectionality because the reality is you hold multiple identities. You're not just your race. You're not just your sex assigned at birth or your gender identity, your nationality, your body type or size. You are you and you hold those identities and you might choose to identify with some and not with others. And others will place labels on you or distribute power to you differently based on the intersection of those identities. So it is just really helpful in thinking about a more holistic organizational strategy, but it's also really, really helpful when we're thinking about teachers and kids in the classroom, because even if teachers aren't teaching intersectionality, they can better understand their students. You cannot look at two students and say, you will need exactly the same thing. I mean, any teacher, any educator will tell you that there are different learning needs in the classroom. Well, a lot of those are gonna be impacted by social factors. I also wanna just take this moment <laughs> to get on my soapbox because again, I'm not practicing CRT. I'm not part of the scholarship. I certainly rely on thinkers from the movement, especially Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, but that's not what I do. What I think is so frustrating is that when people try to use like the logic-based arguments um, and tear down CRT, what I hear over and over again is, this is a feelings versus facts argument. And it's coming from the principle of storytelling. But I just want to go back to organizational culture and change and what expectations are there because I have heard probably nine out of 10 of leaders within the organizations we work with say, I just want to create a space where people can bring their whole selves to work and be authentic. So how can people bring their whole selves to work and be authentic if they aren't allowed to share their stories or talk about their lived experiences? Does that mean that bringing your whole self to work is really only for people from dominant groups. And then also, when did we decide that actual situations, things that actually happened aren't facts? You know, when we do a storytelling share out, we'll ask folks about when did you first understand your racial identity? And generally we have at least one person in the room say, well, it was when I was called this racial slur. And then five other people will say, hey, that was my answer too. How is that not data? <laughs> that, that is always just something that really bothers me. But in terms of you know, K through 12 teachers, 
there might be some pieces. They might talk about how, uh, when we're talking about the criminal justice system, that people of color are much more likely to be incarcerated for committing the same crimes as white people. That might come up in a high school class. But otherwise, the main argument is not against critical race theory in general, but the whole concept of social justice. I mean, that is really where this debate is. And I just wish that we would name it that way because it would make it a lot easier to participate in a discussion where we're not missing each other. I liked how Alita said that we are just missing each other. So I asked Pete Newlove, is this just one big misunderstanding or is something else going on here? So is it really just a, a misunderstanding of what CRT is? Or um, is it a, a is it people who see this uh, taking this as an opportunity to further a particular political viewpoint and using it as leverage? Uh, I, I would say all of the above for sure. It's it's absolutely a misunderstanding, and and it's definitely this like placeholder for uh, racist, classist, ableist anxieties <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that 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 folks with all of those privileges are are dumping their anxieties into, or dumping their racism and classism and ableism. <laughs> you know. I understand as a, you know, a Latinx person that I can be racist, like absolutely a hundred percent. I can, I can be racist, but the awareness that I am or can be, um, doesn't mean that, um, I can't do something about it or that it's, that it's like, it's like either you are racist or you're not racist. Like it's, it's like at any point you can be right. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, and that there, there shouldn't be any shame in, in that other than, um, I mean, there shouldn't be any shame in acknowledging that. Um, but we need to move forward with like understanding it and what do I do about it? So, you know, I, I see this connection with like, we don't want our kids to feel bad. You know, we don't want to, to put, um, you know, we don't want to change or examine the structures. Uh, we're just going to say everything's fine. Right, right, right. You know, because if we say that we, if we acknowledge racism or if we acknowledge ableism, then we're forever marked with that instead of, saying, you know what, there are racist structures, there are ableist structures. Um, well, we can do something about that. We can change, you know? Yeah, there, there's always tensions between like, I think, what is the conversation that we need to have here? And I think some conversations do need to be at that level of the interpersonal. Um, but of, of course, if that, if the conversations within the realm of like trying to figure out if a person is racist, or classist, or xenophobic, mm-hmm. or ableist, the conversation can't really ever get that far. <laughs> but still, people people do things and make choices and enact behaviors 
that, that are always upholding these systems and structures. So we need to talk about the systems and structures and we need to talk about who, who are the people involved and how do we, how do we uh, work towards upholding these things uh, in ways that maybe we're aware of uh, and in ways that we're not aware of as well. You, you mentioned the idea of shame and um, th that that's actually really important to, to lean into as well, because while, while a lot of white folks are expressing concern about like, if we learn about racism, then my white child is going to feel this shame. Um, you, you know, again, first off, that's an important thing to actually lean into rather than avoid, but also like shame is something that gets weaponized um, for people who hold all of these privileges in order to make sure that we kind of get socialized into upholding all of these practices in our daily lives. So like, um, you know, able-bodied folks, like when we're very young, we'll get taught things like the R word so that we can make sure like you're not like this person who might have some kind of like uh, mental incapacity or some sort of like learning disability or struggle. You're not like that person. So we're taught to like use like these words at like these incredibly young ages, mm -hmm. you know, we actually go to school in a sense to learn <laughs> some of these words that we end up coming home with, or a lot of people learn them in their home too, of course. Right. Sure. Or we learn in, in white households, such as like what, what I grew up in and like the white circles that I, that I kind of grew up in, in my community, uh, we learn how to make sure that like we mark differences according to like those folks are Chinese, those folks are black, those folks are Latino, um, uh, those folks speak a different language and we're in, you know, all this terrible stereotypical uh, racist sort of jokes and everything that come along with that are all for the purpose of um, socializing us to make sure that like, um, uh, we, we, we maintain our privilege and, and we're made to feel shame if, if we ever start to like sympathize, mm -hmm. right? If, if we actually question uh, any of that, shame is actually one of the primary mechanisms that like uh, white adults will use to make sure that like kids don't actually explore racial inequalities. Don't ask that question. Right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why is that person different is a completely natural question for a kid to ask, right? right. Uh, like like my, my own daughter, like we had neighbors uh, who, who happened to be uh, immigrants from Mexico uh, and asked like, why, why are they speaking Spanish? You know, there's, there's a lot of white parents who will like in that moment enact uh, a bunch of shame. Like, no, 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 don't say that. Like, you know, I have like, why don't they speak? No, you're not supposed to say that. You'll, you'll sound racist if you say that. Don't do that. Right. You're not supposed right. to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of like, that's a perfectly normal question for my four-year-old daughter to ask. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they come from a country where that's the language that they do speak. <laughs> Pretty right. simple, I think, that's, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's going to handle that conversation, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, like, a person using a wheelchair, you know? Yes. Like, or what happened to them? What's wrong with them? You know? That's a natural question for a kid to ask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and, and we, uh, yeah, and by, by shame, by saying, no, don't talk about that, or we don't talk about that, or that's not appropriate, you know, or 
um, we're reinforcing that that difference is is shameful, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so you might be thinking, Tim, we have made so much progress with racism and ableism. Isn't it getting better? Here is Eddie Fergus. Well, you know, so the idea of like, it, you know, give us credit for it, it's getting better has to be contextualized also that um, the the work to try to make things better has 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 you know spurts and starts over time right like there's been you know so you had for example let's take desegregation of schools right um the 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 terrain of or i should say the the conveyor belt of desegregating schools reached its peak in the 1980s right mm. and then it had its and it's been having sort of this ongoing downturn right as a um as a tool that you know um that school districts have been attentive to or or caring for, right? And some of that is, you know, uh, we have to contextualize that. So if we're talking about what things getting better, that's one piece of it, right? That we've kind of lost steam in terms of our efforts around desegregating schools, right? Particularly desegregating schools by race. Um, and we see that loss of it um, in particular, its greatest loss um, with the, the Supreme Court case of uh, 20, 20, 2007, the Picks versus Seattle case, right, where it basically said, you know, race can't be used as a um, as a variable in how we are trying to sort of create diverse school settings, right, um, and and socioeconomic status can only be used, but to a certain degree, right. Um, so there is a, a manner in which some of this stuff is showing up and, uh, you know, those types of sort of resource allocation conditions or the ways in which schools are being organized, that we've got to be mindful that they haven't been at a steady clip to ensure that things can get better, right? Um, we still have, like, so for example, you have um, states like New Jersey, New York, um, uh, there are several states in the Midwest that I'm blanking out now who've had court cases for the last 15 to 20 years to ensure that there is equitable funding in schooling, right? So if we want to talk about it's getting better. We're still trying to ensure that there's baseline resourcing, that there's baseline of a, a desire for um, integrated schools. So when we're when we have a steady clip of that stuff, then let's engage into the idea of it's getting better, right? Um, because we haven't, we haven't, we're still struggling. We, in some mm. ways, we're still mirroring or still having the same set of struggles that we had that le that leaned in um, and were part of sort of the arguments around Brown versus Board that is still at play here. Um, <clears throat> why does it feel like and and this is not necessarily coming from me uh, in my thoughts, but I'm just I'm trying to reflect some of the pushback because I know, you know, educators have a, you know, a wide spectrum of where they fall politically. Right. And if you happen to be right leaning, mm -hmm. conservative leaning, even if you aren't, you know, weren't storming the Capitol on J January 6th, you have, <laughs> you, or yeah, uh, let's hope, let's hope not. Let's hope no one that listens to this was storming right. the Capitol. But, um, 
if you're if you're that way, if you have a mindset that's that's right leaning, um, to at least honor some of those questions about like, well, why, how, like, what's going on? Why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? Um, and see if we can kind of unpack that. So my my question is, um, if things have not progressed as much as, you know, uh they we really think they have why why do we think they have like why you know just a an educator who uh, you know is in georgia um why why do i think that we've come farther than we really have like where is that where is that coming from right well and i think we you know we have to kind of contextualize the that that uh, the idea of where we've come from in terms of you know mm. that those particular elements of that journey, right? So that educator in Georgia thinking about the context of of where it's come from, right? So um, and and in, uh, you know a, a particularly sort of thinking about a social context that um, you know prior to um, much of the 1950s and 60s law, you know, statute changes that transpired. You know, there was a lot of social permission to keep um, social and legal permission to keep distance from um, various racial ethnic groups, right? And social and legal permission to exclude from, you know, uh, from certain stores or certain uh, using certain water fountains, right? Like there was a great deal of some of that, you know, that was the context, right? So their comparison points maybe was like, we don't do that anymore. We don't have colored and white, you know, uh, water fountains, right? Like we don't we don't explicitly have uh, segregated schools, right? Like you know, yeah, black kids can come to this school. I mean, it's not going to be the school that we're not going to necessarily have the complete doors wide open for them, right? But they can come to the school, right? Um, we can have our, you know, we can have Mexican and Central American students here, right? Um, in these school settings, um, so the the idea of it's gotten better, we've gone further. It's like, yeah, so there is, it's almost as if the, um, you know, we've, we want to applaud ourselves for having given ourselves the social permission to kind of hang out with people that are different than us. And yes, that's, that's progress, right? Uh, But let's also be mindful of the goodness of what's happening in those social interactions to, you know, um, it doesn't mean that these, particularly these public school environments that that kids are situated in, that uh, it's not operating from the vantage point of stereotyped or biased perspectives around the populations that they're serving. Right? There's still sentiments of, you know, we see it in who's ending up being over-identified in special education, that is pre- premised on the sort of presumption around. Um, uh, uh, sort of uh, intelligence that's perceived as not as great for particular groups, right? You know, like some of my survey data that I do with um, of school settings. You know, um, one of the um, the survey items that um, uh, in every district that I work with, about fifteen to twenty percent of the educators that respond to the survey um, agree with the idea that um, differences in, um, racial differences in, um, in intelligence performance tests like IQ, um, they perceive it as due to genetic differences by racial groups. How, right? how, how much, and how many percent? About, about 15 to 20% of every district that I do of, of the educators who take those surveys. Right. And, wow. and so for me, that's, that means that there's still 
an ilk of of um, of racial hierarchy that's still sitting with educators, right? So yes, we've got progress where it's like, yeah, you're hanging out and you're willing to give some opportunity, you know. Um, uh, you're willing to have conversation, but it doesn't mean that you've that we've worked on and we've necessarily dissipated sort of some of the um, racial ideologies, right, or racist ideologies that we maintain about each other. Uh, so I want to sort of, yeah, I can give the credit for we've made this progress. Yeah, we still got a lot more to go, right? It's the yeah. uh, so you can hang out with folks, but <laughs> it doesn't mean that there is uh, there's a complete social inclusion that's happening in terms of in terms of instruction and pedagogy and school systems, right? Um, that are absent of those sets of biased perspectives, uh, particularly racial, ethnic, um, uh, minority populations. Yeah. Uh, and once again, in this conversation, I keep coming back to disability and ableism and how, right. how it, it really just runs parallel, you know, yes. with, um, mm-hmm. because again, you know, well, back before 1975, kids with disability, they weren't even allowed in school. So mm-hmm. now they are. So, mm-hmm. Hey, right. So yeah, so we got, we got them in school, but <laughs> I don't know if I want them in my class. Right. Or as I hear at times from parents in focus groups, you know, it's like, Oh, I, they distract from the teacher. Right. Right. Like they're, and, and they're the, the, the argument is that it's taking away something from my kid because the teacher's distracted, distracted. Right in terms of providing uh, support services for students with IEP, right? Right. Um, so there's, it, it, I always think back to, um, uh, what is it? It's a quote by Clay Shirky's, uh, when you're accustomed to privilege, equity feels like oppression, right? Oh. And you've been, a, oh. you know, you're, you're accustomed. <laughs> Say that again, Eddie. You're, when you're accustomed to privilege, equity feels like oppression, right? Because you've just been, you've gotten used to whatever that is, right? And, but whatever that is, it's also, it's, I was situated as like, it's an uh, an abundance of sort of, of opportunity and privilege that isn't necessarily necessary for you to be successful, right? But you get used to it, right? In, in a way that when we start to sort of, uh, even out the playing field, it feels as if that there is a loss that's happening. I'm losing something, right? And and, and in fact, it's like it, it's not a loss uh, per se, but it's a um, it's a reorientation of how we should have been operating our systems. So, what can educators do about this? Here is Alita Miranda Wolf. From what I've gathered. 26 states have proposed legislation or executive actions that limit or ban CRT in schools, in the classroom. And what I want to also emphasize there is it can feel like a minefield for teachers when these laws are not referring to anything in CRT. (laughs) There's a civil rights law and policy expert, Bob Kim, who's written really eloquently about this whole situation. And frankly, really simply so that it's easy to understand. And he's been able to break down how these laws often have nothing to do with CRT and are more a product of that previous administration's response to the 1619 project. Many people believe that that executive order was issued in response to the 1619 project. And the 1776 project was a, a counter argument against it. This idea that America is great, that 
we're criticizing elements of American history or focusing on them too much to invalidate the country's greatness, which is really a nationalism issue, has created really an ambiguous environment because as a teacher, you feel like you can get fined or fired for saying anything. I mean, my one of my favorite articles, because it was so cynical, but also felt so true, was from The Onion at the start of February, where it basically, the, the headline is something like, school calendar jumps to March 1st after critical race theory ban prohibits month of February, which of course is Black History Month. And it was interesting. I remember sharing it with a number of teachers that I work with who were all, you know, laughing so as not to be crying because that's what they were feeling. So just a few things that can be helpful. I want to start by saying I'm not a lawyer and I'm not providing legal advice. But the first thing I would do is look up your state and what legislation or executive actions exist first. And then based on that, bring whatever proposed curriculum or content to your leadership within your school to check. Is this going to be within our commitments? I want to emphasize that most of these laws actually are really vague or really broad. I've looked at Iowa and Texas in particular. And in Iowa, you can talk about whatever you want. You can talk about the KKK. You can talk about white supremacy. You can talk about racism. You just as a teacher have to make sure that you're not telling students they have to believe in your ideology while you teach it, which to me reads actually like a response to parents, right? Parents who are afraid that their kids are being taught that their country is bad, that their race is bad, that these institutions are bad. So presenting the information and noting what students find helpful is what they can take with them, but that you're not trying to convince them that they can make up their own minds. That's a useful practice. And then, like I said, talking to your school leadership about this is important too, because, you know, school leadership can be afraid. They can also decide they want to take an activist stance on this. And we are seeing that at a number of schools, especially because public schools in particular do have a right to freedom of speech. And many educators are viewing this legislation as being illegal and interfering with freedom of speech, but also because the laws being written are so vague and so broad and in such unspecific generic terms, there's just question about whether they are even legal and will even hold. So for educators, that's a reminder. And then the other thing I'll say is it's a blurry line when we think about your individual right to freedom of speech, because as an individual, you can advocate, you can state your opinions, you can share what you think about these concepts outside of the classroom. The problem here, of course, is what is the role of social media in schools? We've seen this a lot on the side of students posting and being expelled or being given detention or being investigated for their behavior, but teachers are afraid of the same happening to them. And so it is limiting their speech in some ways because there aren't clearly defined parameters. And so this is another place where I don't think enough schools have 
crystal clear policies on what their social media policy is for teachers and what will be considered and won't be considered. And that is absolutely something that I believe teachers should be advocating for. How can you follow the rules if you don't know what they are? I'm so thankful you made it this far. And before we wrap up with some final thoughts from Eddie Fergus, I wanted to say that if you loved this episode, let us know by emailing us at podcast at thinkinclusive.us or message us on social media. You can also become a patron. Visit patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast. I'll be posting the unedited versions of all of our interviews. In the one with King Williams, we have a great discussion about Confederate monuments and memorials including Stone Mountain in Georgia, the largest Confederate memorial in the world. Check it out. Okay, here is Eddie Fergus to close us out. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. But we just, unfortunately, we made a mistake and overprivileged you in this is in this particular dynamic, right? And now we are needing to, um, you know, really um, uh, rectify the field. And some of that means we're gonna have to do more for the groups who've been absent of for a long time in order for us to really reconcile sort of the damage and the overprivileging that we've done. We've damaged one group and overprivileged another. So, um, and I'm sorry, I, I keep coming back to that over and over again as where this is, as this pushback is happening, it's like, you know, it's like you've been so accustomed to a level of privilege that equity, any sentiment of equity feels like oppression, right? The idea of, wait a second, now I have to learn about other people. I have to take a course on, you know, in Connecticut, you know, they passed a, um, a law now where they're going to be offering African-American and Puerto Rican and Latinx history courses at the high school level, right? And, you know, there's, uh, there's angst around it, right? Because folks are like, wait a second, I was never trained on this wait a second, my kids have to learn some other, uh, more history? Well, you know, it's like, that's too much, right? When in fact, you actually were, you know, um, you were being privileged, your identity was being overly privileged by being the centerpiece of everything, right? As a former social studies teacher, right? I had to supplement the stories of everyone else to kind of help fill in this historical sort of understanding that we have about sort of what's transpired, um, particularly in U.S. history, so that kids weren't walking away that, you know, all we need to know about Mexicans is that they fought us, you know, during um, the Alamo. And um, and we uh, and we had to take their land in the 1848 Guadalupe, uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty or you know, um, you know, now I need to know about sort of the, the Tulsa riots, right? It's like, I had to do all this supplement so that my kids could have a more robust and complete historical picture. So they weren't just situating with the idea of like, oh, we're so exceptional. We've done everything great. We, we wrote the declaration. We had the Federalist Papers. We had, I mean, all these great things that we've done and look at us now, right? Um, because that is, you know, that's, it, it creates a level of analytical shortcomings for our kids when we are sort of uh, allowing them to have this sort of very myopic um, uh, curricular exposure over time. So, and that's what, we, you know, so we have to have this sort of, overabundance of work that happens now in order for us to really uh, uh, achieve the level of equity that's necessary for our kids. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is, you know, the, I can hear some of the critics like CRT is teaching kids to hate America. No, it's teaching kids to understand America better. 
Yes, yes, that's a great way to say it, to understand America better, because there's so much of, particularly in history, as somebody who's taught history, of how uh, our textbooks our, our, you know, well, you know, folks, for first of all, most folks don't know that, you know, textbooks are actually, they're written by publishing companies, but are approved by state boards, right? Mm. So they get to make decisions around what's the stuff that's in there, right? And that's, that's those state boards are compiled of folks who are from that state, right? They're determining the set of standards that are most important and the types of information that's within there, right? Um, like, for example, there was a textbook that McGraw-Hill um, published for Texas, a geography textbook in 2015. Um, and one of the pages where it had in the caption, uh, had a picture of the, uh, of the slave states. And in the caption, it said, um, uh, between, uh, I forget what years it had on there, you know, uh, uh, thousands of workers were brought from Africa, right, to the United States. And it goes on to talk about how they brought workers, right, not slaves, not had a system of slavery, but had workers, right? And so those are sets of, that's a orientation that in that particular Texas geography book that McGraw-Hill published, but it was the Texas State Board and those who sat there who'd made that approval, mm. right? They're the ones who said, no, 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 this is, this is how we are languaging sort of those touch points of how we understand that historical moment. Um, so you're right. It is a matter of, you know, uh, we are helping our kids understand America better. That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. Special thanks to King Williams, Eddie Fergus, Alita Miranda Wolf, and Pete Newlove for taking time to speak with me about CRT. Thanks to BG Ad Group for giving us permission to repost the Cherokee Tribune Ledger podcast. Thanks to Kayla Kingston for her note-taking and editing powers. We couldn't produce the show without you. Thank you to patrons Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., and Jarrett T. for their continued support of the podcast. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at mcie.org. We will be back with another Think Inclusive episode in a couple weeks. And look out for more editions of the weekliest and bonus episodes in the meantime. Thanks for your time, attention, and for listening. Until next time, remember, inclusion always works. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.